Hey, Greg, could you adjust the camera so I'm not tilted? Nice. All right, now I'm tilted the other way. <laughs> That's fine, right? <clears throat> All right, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> let's begin. So I'm a little under the weather today. It was a little, I guess, welcome back gift for California. <laughs> as soon as we came back, Emma and I both got sick or soon after coming back. So ask for your patience today as we begin Sunday school. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Calvary. We're moving onward in our <clears throat> study of the Gospels today. We've examined Jesus' birth and childhood, but now we come to the final events in Jesus' preparation for ministry, and that's his baptism and his temptation. Now, the original lesson plan calls, us to, calls for us to cover both of those events today, Jesus' baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. But as I got into the passage, I found that there's a lot that I wanted to discuss regarding Jesus' baptism and regarding John the Baptist. <clears throat> so, and we also have a review day coming up. You know, I sometimes use the review days as extra days of teaching. So what I've decided to do is actually break this lesson into two parts. We're going to cover Jesus' baptism today, and we'll talk about his temptation in the wilderness next week. And then we'll get back to lesson 12 the week after. And after that, we'll be back in line with the other Sunday school classes. So today we're only talking about Jesus' baptism, which finally lets me use the little water theme for my PowerPoint presentation, which is kind of exciting. Now recall that last time we were looking at Luke's account of Jesus being left behind in the temple. We saw from that account the mysterious display of Jesus' full humanity and his full deity. Jesus needed to learn spiritual truth. Yet he always seemed to know spiritual truth, especially who he was and why he came to the earth. He was always infinitely beloved by his heavenly father, yet he grew in favor with God as he was obedient and as he grew up on earth. Now we're going to see more of this mysterious relationship of Jesus' humanity and his divinity as we turn back to Matthew's account of the life of Jesus and particularly Jesus' baptism. Now, why does Matthew record this event? And where did baptism itself come from? Why did Jesus need to be baptized? What did Jesus' baptism signify about him? And what can we learn from this passage regarding our attitudes toward Jesus, toward salvation, and toward baptism? We've got a lot of great questions to investigate today, and we're going to do so using our inductive Bible study method. We're going to break down the text into two main parts We'll talk about the introduction and the ministry of John the Baptist, and then we'll talk about the actual baptism of Jesus. And we'll finish up by talking about application. There's my outline there. All right, let's pray. Our God, I pray that you'd help me this morning to explain, teach your word adequately, accurately, uh, in a way that is worthy of it, Help us understand this word. Help us to live by it. 
We need this word. I pray that you would open the hearts of the hearers today to be edified by it, to be convicted if necessary. I pray, Spirit, that you would work among your people. I don't have the power, but God, you have the power. So I pray that you would work now for your own name's sake. Amen. Okay, let's look first at the introduction of John the Baptist and his ministry. So if you haven't done so yet, please open your Bibles to Matthew 3. I guess you couldn't have done it yet because I didn't tell you, but Matthew 3 is where we're going to be. Matthew chapter 3, start by reading verses 1 to 12. This is our first section. Matthew 3, verses 1 to 12. That's page 958 for using the Pew Bible. Let's read. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying, In the wilderness, make ready the way of Yahweh. Or, I'm sorry, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, step one, let's observe our passage. Notice the in those days of verse one. Based on our previous study, we can say that these events take place when Jesus is close to 30 years old, or about A.D. 24 to 26. So around 24 to 26 AD. Now notice that John the Baptist, John the Baptist is our main subject here. He comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what's John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now notice the word repent here. The word repent is used, this word for repent is used many times in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek verb metanaeo, which means basically to change one's mind. The one who repents stops thinking one way and starts thinking another way. He affirms the truth, and then he adjusts his behavior in a way that is consistent with that truth. Repentance, therefore, is well defined as a change of mind that results in a change of action. Now John calls on the people to repent. And why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is to say, the kingdom of heaven is near. 
It's about to arrive. It's coming close. Therefore, repent. Now, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, it's not used in the Old Testament. Neither is the phrase, the synonymous phrase, kingdom of God. You don't hear that particular phrase in the Old Testament, either of those phrases. But certainly the idea of a coming divine kingdom was not new. What kingdom were the people of Israel anticipating? Yes, Steve. I'm sorry. Um, sound people, can we turn up the, the volume? I can't hear. Um, can't hear what anyone in the congregation is saying. Uh, just very barely. <laughs> can you try again, Steve? All right, the restored kingdom of, uh, I think you said Judah or Israel. All right, um, until we get that, that sound up, I'll maybe not ask questions. But yeah, certainly they were looking for they were looking for God's promise to restore them, to bring back their kingdom, the restored kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Messiah. And we can even say the kingdom of God himself, because we just got to go back to the words of the prophets, some of the things that we've even seen in the Old Testament. In fact, look at what Matthew does here. Right when he mentions John the Baptist and his message, he quotes from Isaiah. And notice what chapter this is from. This is Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, says this. This is Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. A voice is calling, Clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So what, what was the idea in Isaiah 40? It's that King Yahweh himself is coming. Therefore, a way must be prepared for him in the wilderness. King Yahweh is going to come and set up his glorious kingdom in Israel. And its glory and majesty is going to extend over the whole earth. This is an expectation that Israel has. But remember what Malachi said. We looked at Malachi. When God's kingdom comes, will this be good news for everyone in Israel and everyone in the world? In a way, yes, but in a way, no. Because what is coming with God's kingdom? Judgment. Listen again to Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Malachi 4, verses 1 to 3. God says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. So indeed, the coming of God's kingdom is good news for the righteous remnant, but it's terrible news for those who stubbornly cling to sin, even in Israel. 
the coming of God's kingdom will not be a good day for them. So John's call to repentance makes a lot of sense, right? He's essentially reminding the people, which side do you want to be on when God's kingdom arrives? Do you want to be on the side of his citizens or on the side of his enemies? Therefore, repent. Now, back in Matthew 3, verse 4 gives, you, gives us a quick description of John, his clothing, and his diet. He wears clothes of camel hair, and he has a leather belt. And also mentions he eats locusts and wild honey. Now compare this description with what is said in 2 Kings verse, or chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. The verse says, he said to them, what kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? They answered him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Ah, noticing a similarity in these descriptions? John the Baptist is dressed like Elijah. Now notice all the people coming to John. In verse 5, it says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan River. They're coming to John. Many, many people coming to him in the bare wilderness. Verse 6 says that John sets up by the Jordan River, and there he starts baptizing the Jews who come to him. Now, what is this baptism thing? The word baptize means to put someone or something in liquid. We could say Synonyms like plunge, dip, wash, or bathe. But where does this idea of uh, plunging or baptizing come from in religion? Where does religious baptism come from? Well, the Old Testament never prescribed a baptism of repentance, as we see set up by John here. But the law of Moses did frequently prescribe bathing as part of cleansing from ritual uncleanness. If you go back to Leviticus or Numbers, you'll see if you become unclean in this way, you have to do this, this, thing, and then you have to bathe yourself, and then you can um, come back later into the camp. Oh, let me go back. Okay. Oh, the sound is still a little bit quiet. Uh, actually, it's still very quiet. So, no, not, not quite there yet. Just uh, saying that for the sound team. So we do have this idea of the bathing from ritual uncleanness in the Old Testament. Moreover, a custom had developed among the Jews by this time regarding Gentile converts to Judaism. Namely, that a convert, as a sign of, a, as cl- a sign of cleansing from his former life of Gentile impurity, he would ceremonially wash in the presence of witnesses while a rabbi read from the law. This washing was immersive, preferably done in a natural water source like a river, but it could also be done in special washing receptacles that permitted the full submersion of the body. Well, actually, I found a lot of these receptacles archaeologically in in Jewish communities. Hey, that's a little bit better in terms of sound. Now, notice that those baptized by John are confessing their sins. Oh, was that a question in the back? Dwayne? No? Okay. Then we see the, this, uh, so the people who are baptized are confessing their sins, but then we see this contrasting word. Verse 7, but, but the Pharisees and Sadducees also came down to be baptized. Who are the Pharisees and Sadducees? 
Ah, these are two prestigious factions, religious factions within Judaism at this time. They comprise, essentially, Israel's religious elite. The Sadducees were a group that did not acknowledge any part of the Old Testament as inspired by God, except the five books of Moses. That was their only scriptures. They did not believe in the resurrection, nor in most things supernatural, including angels. They also rejected human religious traditions. The Sadducees, you could guess if they didn't believe in the resurrection, they were very this-world-minded. They were often greedy, unscrupulous, and obsessed with power. Now, where could one find Sadducees at this time? Why, in Jerusalem, especially in the temple and among the priesthood. Much of the official Jewish political and religious leadership at this time was Sadducee. The Pharisees were the counter-movement to the Sadducees. Pharisees acknowledged all of the Old Testament, as well as their rabbinic traditions. Pharisees affirmed the supernatural, and they affirmed the resurrection, and they stressed strict adherence to God's law and to the traditions of the rabbis. Therefore, Pharisees were thought to be the holiest of all Jews. Many Pharisees were also rabbis. Pharisees were much more popular with the common people than the Sadducees, though, as we'll see in Jesus' ministry, Jesus constantly exposes the fake righteousness of the Pharisees. So we have men from these two groups coming to John to receive baptism. Now you'd think that this would have pleased John. Hey, look, even the religious elites have come to repent. But notice what John does. He first calls them a brood of vipers. Okay, what does that mean? Let's see if I can uh, hear you guys now. What's a brood of vipers? Yeah, it's a group of snakes. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about a pit. Uh, brood is the idea of uh, offspring. So these are viper babies. Uh, viper, by the way, is a type of snake known for injecting venom via its fangs. Viper venom is a special kind of venom that disrupts blood. It can be quite deadly. A viper bite can disrupt the normal blood clotting system in a creature and cause the blood pressure of that creature to collapse. So depending on how much venom goes from a snake into a person, it can kill you. John tells these religious leaders, you are the spawn of a deadly and venomous snake. Then John asks a question. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is a rhetorical question. The sense appears to be, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Now notice the therefore, verse 8. John introduces a conclusion based on what he just said. Because wrath truly is coming and because you truly are a brood of vipers, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Notice what John advises against. He says, do not simply tell yourself that Abraham is your father. Why, and why not? John says, because God can raise up children to Abraham out of stones. Then something else. John says, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. And then we get another therefore in verse 10. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So this, this wood from this, these trees, they're not going to be saved for anything but burning. And then notice the fire imagery continues into verse 11 and 12. Who is it that's bringing the fire? 
Who's bringing the fire? The one coming after John, which we'll see. Yes, it is Jesus. John says, though, about this one, he's not fit to remove his sandals, but when he comes, this one will baptize with both the Holy Spirit and fire. So notice there's a repetition of this idea of baptism. John baptizes with water, but the one coming is also going to baptize, but in a different way. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we get another image in verse 12, an image of winnowing and a winnowing fork. Uh, what's this all about? What is winnowing? Well, remember that when you harvest grain, especially at that time, you have to go through a couple different steps. You first have to cut the grain down in the field. You bring it back and you thresh it. You pound it or you, you run something over it so you can break the, uh, the kernel apart so you have the good, the good head of grain, which is edible, and then you have the chaff, which is not edible. It's a, kind of like a shell on the, the stalk of grain. But those things are mixed together. You need to separate them. How are you going to do that? Well, you would use a winnowing fork. You would winnow it. And that means that you take the pile of grain and chaff and you toss it into the air in a breezy spot with your fork. And the chaff, because it was light, it would blow away while the grain that you actually want falls back down. The heads of grain fall back, or yeah, the, the edible part falls back down. So winnowing fork is for separating wheat from chaff. And notice that John says, the winnowing fork is already in the hand of this coming one. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He's not going to miss anything. And what will be the result? He will gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will be burned up with unquenchable fire. That is, this fire is not going to stop. Nothing can put it out, neither will it put itself out by running out of fuel. This is an everlasting fire. All right, now that we've worked through our passage with observations, let's ask interpretation questions now. In what sense was God's kingdom near in John's ministry? In what sense was the kingdom of God near? Yeah. Exactly. We're, we're talking about the coming of the Messiah here. The one bringing the kingdom, that is the Messiah, is about to appear on the scene. And even as John says, this Messiah will gather the righteous remnant and destroy all wicked ones. And now note that Jesus himself will say the same thing about the kingdom of God later on in Matthew. In fact, just a chapter later. Matthew 4.17, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it's not that the kingdom automatically arrives with the coming of the Messiah, but Messiah is the one who will set up God's promised kingdom. So it is right for both John and Jesus to say the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, why does Matthew quote Isaiah 40 in reference to John? Why bring that up in this passage? If Matthew quotes this passage that connects with what John is doing, what does that show about John? 
Exactly. Yeah, this is a way of showing that what John is doing fulfills prophecy and that John and his message are from God. That's right. He's authenticated. Now, we could say the same thing about the description of John also given in Matthew. Matthew doesn't just haphazardly note the appearance of John and his diet. This is also to help the reader to see that John is the second Elijah, as Malachi prophesied. Remember Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6, very end of Malachi? God says, I'm going to send Elijah to you. And we see one very much like Elijah in the man, John the Baptist. Now, by undergoing baptism, what were the Jews that were coming to John declaring about themselves? Remember the context of this washing or bathing? So what would it have meant for a Jew to be baptized by John? Yeah, they're acknowledging their deep sinfulness. Even, uh, some say this, and I think it's plausible, even to the level of being a Gentile. Saying, I'm so unclean, I need to do what a Gentile proselyte needs to do. My former life is that impure. So we understand why uh, the passage says that when they were baptized, they were confessing their sins. Now, why, though, does John get so upset when he sees the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism? That's right. However, we understand... Um, and John's thinking, it's certainly along the lines of, he knew that they were being hypocritical. They didn't think they needed baptism, or if they did think that they needed baptism, John knew that they weren't really serious about repentance. So he calls them out. He sees their desire for baptism and for confessing their sin as fake. And we see the strong emphasis from John to them and to the people about bearing fruit. Now, what is someone trusting in if he says, Abraham is my father. That's right, yeah. Whatever I've inherited, my culture or my, my bloodline, that is going to be, that's, that's going to be the thing that's going to save me or protect me. But John points out, or John's next line points out the silliness of that. When he says God can raise up children to Abraham from stones, John is showing that lineage is nothing special. Being a Jew doesn't save you, just as being a Gentile doesn't condemn you. Nothing is impossible with God. He can make people out of stones who are inheritors of Abraham's covenant. But what God has declared is that he will judge the wicked and save the righteous. Lineage does not matter when it comes to that. Now, what truth does John emphasize when he mentions the axe is already laid at the root of the tree and the winnowing fork is in the hand of the one who is coming?
That's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying judgment is imminent. Time is almost up. Trees are about to get cut down. For some reason, when I think of that line, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, I can't help but thinking of a cartoon, like a, like a lumberjack or somebody coming up next to a tree, laying down the axe just for a second so he can spit on his hands and then grab the axe again and start chopping. That's the idea. The tree is about to be cut down. Or if the winnowing fork is in the hand of the one who's coming, the wheat and the chaff are about to be separated. God's kingdom is coming imminently. And that means both salvation and judgment. Yeah, Rob. Okay, it's a really great question, Rob. What this promise that the kingdom is near, how was that fulfilled or when was that fulfilled? We'll come back to that question in just a little bit. But uh, before that, a couple more questions. What is the baptism of fire that the coming one will bring? The contest, the context of that statement is all judgment. So I think the best way to understand that phrase is that this is a baptism of judgment. This is not the holy fire of devotion that we sometimes sing about in Christian songs. This is the fire that consumes. This is, I think, ultimately everlasting hellfire that we're talking about here. You see, the Messiah brings two kinds of baptisms. He brings the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we don't understand as some special spiritual experience, but rather the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that Jesus procured for all believers by his work on the cross. So he brings the Holy Spirit for those who are saved, but for those who are unrepentant and evil, he brings fire. He will bring two kinds of baptism. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a good comment. You were talking about how your impression was that the fire was a cleansing fire uh, for those who are being saved. Though verse 12 does suggest the fire is more a fire of judgment. In a sense, it is a cleansing fire, but not, not a personally cleansing fire. This is a nationally cleansing fire. This is a fire that cleanses Israel. And part of the way that that happens is by actually destroying the wicked ones. If we just refer back again to what we heard from Malachi um, in chapter 4, it was that same idea. Israel, I'm going to purify you, but it's going to be a purific or purification by judgment. Yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, that's sobering, Dwayne. Um, just just repeating what you said, the, the context again of verses 10, um, 12 and 13 is where they all mention fire. It's a fire of judgment. And even in Revelation 20, when people are cast into the lake of fire, it is a baptism, really. They are immersed in fire. There's another um, 
a verse from Jesus later on that where he mentions fire and it connects it with judgment. It's interesting that we have this expression in, in our Christianity today where we link fire as a as a sign of devotion and something good. Uh, you want to be on fire for God. That's not necessarily a wrong thing to say, but that phrase is not not found in the Bible. You don't have that concept in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Fire is almost always a uh, a judgment or even purification. Yeah, Dwayne. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's a good point, Wayne. I didn't think of that. But you're right. There, We do have fire. Tongues of fire appear on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And that was that was a special sign of the, the spirit coming down upon them and dwelling them, enabling them to speak in tongues. So, yeah, the, today we do see, and especially in the charismatic movement, the the connection with fire with being filled with God's spirit. But in this passage, the context is definitely all judgment. So we shouldn't understand the baptism of fire here as to, as referring to Pentecost. Uh, no, I think the, the fire is rather the fire of judgment. Uh, yeah, Roy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what you're bringing out, Roy, is that as I think is totally right that from Isaiah even and the other prophets in the Old Testament, we have the idea of uh, a coming separation. There's a there's an existent separation between those who really follow God and those who don't. But that separation is going to be made more stark when God comes. He's going to reward the righteous. He's going to vindicate their faith in him. But he's going to destroy the hypocrites and the wicked ones. And really, this idea of separation goes all the way back to Genesis, right? You have the seed of the woman at war with the seed of the serpent. And I, I don't know if I can really say this dogmatically, but it is interesting that he calls them brood of, brood of a viper. That's a snake. That could even be an allusion back to the serpent in the garden. He says, you're, you're, not, you're from the line of the, the evil one. I don't know if I can say that too dogmatically, but certainly the idea is, as you were saying, Roy, there's a separation between those who truly follow God and those who don't. And so by referring to Isaiah here and just even thinking about the context, the prophets behind these words, the, the passage is continuing that explanation of there's a, there's a separation. 
there's a separation that's going to be going to result in two different destinies when God's kingdom comes. And Jesus, as you said, Roy, Jesus will say the same thing. He will talk about how he he separates. And even at the end, at the end of the age, what do we see? The separation of the sheep and the goats. And one, they receive God's blessing and the other, they are cast into eternal darkness and flame. Yeah, so the the context here is a very sobering one. The message here is a very sobering one. It is judgment and blessing. Blessing for those who repent, but judgment for those who will not, or who only hypocritically repent. Here, we need to move on. But we've talked about the baptism of fire, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All of this centers around the idea of bearing, or all this is connected to the idea of bearing fruit. What does it mean to bear fruit? Well, that's to live a changed life. One that's not characterized by your former actions, your sins, but is characterized by holiness and a fear and love for God. This is, again, a very common message in the New Testament. The mark of true repentance is a changed life. Jesus and the apostles will say much about this. If you've truly changed your mind about God, if you change your mind about your sin and about yourself, then it will show up in your actions. Those who have truly repented begin to live lives of increasing righteousness and affection for God, while those who have falsely repented don't have such fruit. So bearing fruit is critical. It's not merely an optional way to live before God. John declares boldly here, John the Baptist declares boldly that every tree not just some, not just a few. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and burned. Every person without the fruit of repentance in his life that shows that he hasn't truly repented, he'll be judged by God. And that judgment, John emphasizes, is already ready to begin. Now, from our perspective, of course, we can't be totally definitive just looking at fruit in people's lives and say, you're a Christian, you're not a Christian. You're, you're going to be judged or you're not going to be judged. But there is, there is this warning from God in the Bible that if you're not bearing fruit, that's a, that's a mark of you not being a believer. And that is a mark also of judgment coming upon you. So you need to beware. Now, who's the one who brings this judgment? Well, it's the one that John says is coming after him. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah. So behold, then, this striking truth about Christ. He is no mere mild-mannered rabbi. He is the bringer of amazing salvation for the repentant remnant, but he's the administrator of terrifying judgment for the unrepentant and the hypocritical. So we can just go back to the two images of baptism mentioned here. Those without true repentance will be baptized with fire by Jesus. Total judgment. While those who have truly repented will be baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. They will have total blessing. And this, of course, is all very consistent with the nature of God as expressed in the Old Testament. We can go back to Exodus 34. You, you may remember me sharing that passage with you lately. But that's where God declares his nature before Moses as his glory passes by. And he emphasizes both. I am a totally compassionate God. I give abundant loving kindness for those who fear me. But I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I will... I will totally destroy them. I will overwhelm them with my judgment. Now, John preached that God's coming kingdom 
This is going back to your question, Rob. God's coming kingdom and its judgment was imminent. It was close at hand. Yet the kingdom did not come during Jesus' earthly ministry. Or at least not as John seems to suggest it was. And neither did God's judgment come. Neither did the final day of tribulation. Neither did what the prophets declared. So was John mistaken about Jesus when he said the kingdom is near? You may remember that later on in the gospel, John will actually send a message to Jesus, and he'll ask Jesus, are you really the one who is to come? Or is it someone else? This is after John is put in prison. And the idea seems to be that John, he didn't understand what was happening. Things were not happening the way that he expected. Jesus, though, answers John by saying, I am the one who is to come, and God's plan is indeed being fulfilled. So, What do we make of this? In what sense was John and later Jesus correct in declaring that God's kingdom was at hand? I think the answer that is uh, is best here is that God's kingdom, as expressed in the Old Testament, God's kingdom would have come had the Jews accepted their Messiah. But because the people rejected Jesus, God's kingdom was delayed. Another way you could say it is that God's kingdom came only in a limited way, in a seed form, in a hidden and mysterious form. The full visible manifestation of God's kingdom, as expressed in the Old Testament, was delayed due to the rejection of the Jews. Now, this rejection was not a surprise to God. It's not like he said, "Uh uh-oh, plan A is not going to work, time for plan B. No, in fact, that was also a fulfillment of what the prophets foretold. This was all part of the plan. And also, this development did not change God's plans for Israel. As Jesus said, not a jot or a tittle will pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. So those promises that God gave about the kingdom in the Old Testament, they're still going to be fulfilled. In fact, all of this is really one of the core concerns of Matthew as he writes this gospel. Remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience that, that have some understanding of the gospel, but He wants to explain to them why the expected kingdom of God did not come when the Messiah King came to the earth. It was because Jesus wasn't really the king or something else. Now, Matthew insists that Jesus is the king, and he shows that again and again. And he also shows the kingdom is still coming. It's only been delayed by Israel's rejection. We can say, though, getting back to a little bit of what you're saying, uh, Rob, that Israel's rejection of the Messiah did result in judgment on them. It's not like God said, okay, you're getting off scot-free for not accepting my Messiah. Think about what Jesus foretold in the Olivet Discourse. He says there's going to be some massive judgment brought on Jerusalem. The temple is going to be thrown down. Ultimately, the Jews were expelled from their land again. So, there was a, a severe consequence that came to Israel for rejecting their Messiah. It was, um, in a way, John's words about coming judgment found a, a foreshadowed fulfillment, or a, foreshadow, a foreshadowing like the ultimate fulfillment. But God's kingdom is still going to come. It's going to still come for Israel. And now more than ever, John's and Jesus' words regarding God's kingdom then are true. Jesus will come again and finish what he began. Jesus will inaugurate God's kingdom on earth, and he will bring salvation to the remnant on the one hand, 
and bring furious judgment to all wicked ones on the other. And therefore, the, the response that John exhorted his audience to embrace is still appropriate, more appropriate than ever. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near, or the kingdom of heaven is near. So to sum up this first part of the passage, we have a, a number of truths, three of them to remember. John the Baptist came as the promised forerunner of God's promised king, that is Jesus. And John sought to prepare the people for the Messiah. This is exactly as the prophets foretold. Through Jesus will be the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectations about God's coming kingdom, including expectations regarding salvation and expectations regarding judgment. The proper response to such a coming of God's kingdom and God's Messiah is repentance that bears genuine fruit. Now, John's ministry in the wilderness of Judea and by the Jordan was quite powerful. He himself was quick to declare his own low status compared to the one who was to come. So let's now see that one as he comes on the scene later on in this chapter. Look at verses 13 to 17 now of Matthew 3. Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17, just a short little section. Let's read. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All right, let's make some quick observations on this section. The one John spoke about, Jesus himself, he comes to John for baptism at the Jordan. But John at first doesn't want to baptize Jesus, insisting that Jesus is the one who needs to baptize John. But notice Jesus' answer to John. He says, permit it at this time. So notice that that answer to John acknowledges the merit or some merit in John's objection. But Jesus nonetheless tells John, you need to baptize me regardless. And he gives the reason. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This answer is enough to persuade John. He baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up from the water. And that description suggests immersion in the water. And a striking sign appears. Notice the word behold is used twice in verses 16 to 17. Behold, the heavens were open and the Spirit of God descended as a dove, lighting on Jesus. And behold, also a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We can compare that statement, by the way, to something else Isaiah said. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, has God saying this. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So I make these observations. Now some interpretation questions. Why did John feel at first that it was inappropriate for him to baptize Jesus?
Yeah, he, he was aware of Jesus' greater status, but there's something else, too. Uh, Dwayne. Exactly. This is a baptism of uh, symbolizing cleansing and repentance. Jesus doesn't need that. He's sinless. If anyone needs baptism, it's John, because he's got sin. Jesus acknowledges that some element of John's understanding is valid, but he explains that this baptism is still necessary in order that the two of them might fittingly fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does Jesus mean by that statement? This is a difficult question to answer, since the immediate context does not really tell us. Different theologians have answered it in different ways. Considering the ministry of Jesus as a whole, though, as presented in the New Testament, I think the, the best answer is to say that in being baptized, Jesus was identifying himself with the people he came to save. Speaking practically, Jesus later commands that those who believe in him be baptized as a sign of repentance of their sin. And though Jesus did not need such cleansing, it was fitting for him, it was righteous for him to be baptized as an example for all of his believing brethren to follow. I mean, because think about Jesus' life. We follow Jesus in every way. We follow him in, um, in obedience. We follow him even unto death. We follow him in baptism. So there's a practical aspect to the fittingness of this baptism. But there's also a figurative aspect. Jesus came as the new head and representative of his people. And though Jesus did not need cleansing from sin, his represented people did. So it was fitting, it was righteous for Jesus as the head and representative to undergo baptism for his people's sake. Really, Jesus' baptism prefigures what Jesus will do on the cross for his people. Jesus will bear their sins and endure the baptism that they ought to endure. This baptism we talked about earlier, the baptism of death and hell fire, so that those who become baptized like him, those who believe in him, those who repent and follow him, they will not experience the baptism of fire, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that Jesus actually says in the Gospel of Luke refers to his passion, his crucifixion, in terms of a baptism. Luke 12, verses 49 to 50. Luke 12, 49 to 50, Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Again, it's that same idea that we talked about earlier. But then Jesus says, but I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Listen also to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. John says also something about baptism, both for Jesus and believers. Romans 6, verses 3 to 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. <clears throat> to sum this up then, Jesus' baptism had a unique meaning for him. Jesus' baptism was not a baptism of repentance and cleansing, but it was a fitting and righteous way for him to identify with his people and to prefigure his bearing sin on their behalf and providing them with cleansing. Another question. 
Why does the Spirit descend as a dove on Jesus? Good question. Certainly we can see that there's an aspect of affirmation here, affirmation of Jesus as, the, as God. John, in his gospel, the Apostle John, records some of the words of John the Baptist. John 1, verses 32, here's what John the Baptist comments regarding Jesus' baptism. John 1, verse 32. I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So the visible manifestation of the Spirit on Jesus affirmed Jesus or affirmed who Jesus was. <clears throat> the Spirit is giving testimony on Jesus' behalf. We can also see an element of empowerment for ministry here. Verse 12, right, uh, not verse 12, but later on, uh, right after our passage, it talks about how the Spirit impels Jesus to go into the wilderness. The Spirit descends upon Jesus, and then all of a sudden, and, and immediately, it's moving Jesus to do certain things. Luke says the same thing in his gospel, in the same a narrative describing Jesus' baptism and his going into the wilderness. It says he went in the Spirit into the wilderness, and when he comes back from the wilderness, he is full of the power of the Spirit. So we see the Spirit's lighting upon Jesus is not only a testimony, but it is a sign of Spirit empowerment. Now, did Jesus, as God, did he really need the Spirit's empowerment? Well, in a way, no. But in a way, yes. Jesus appears to have relied on God's Spirit in some way as, as a human. Even though he was God, he was still human, and he did things by the Spirit. Now, why a dove? Why did the, the Spirit descend as a dove? I don't know. <laughs> Matthew and John both say, in their Gospels, Matthew and John both say that the Spirit ascended as a dove. Mark and Luke say it descended like a dove. Doves don't really feature prominently in the Bible, except in one notable event. You remember the flood. Noah sends out a dove, and it comes back with the olive branch, showing that everything is safe outside the ark. Doves are also mentioned at other parts of the Bible as symbols of innocence, affection, or sorrow. Not symbols, but descriptions. They're images of innocence, affection, or sorrow. Is something of that in the form of the dove here? Are we supposed to see a symbolic significance? I'm not really sure. It's hard to say. I wouldn't want to wade into that. What's more important is that the Spirit is giving visible testimony on Jesus' behalf. God the Father does the same thing. We have this voice from heaven. It has to be the Father. And why does God speak? Why does he say, this is my beloved Son? He too is giving testimony on behalf of his Son. He's declaring who Jesus is. And showing that everything that Jesus does has God's approval. Really, we have all three persons of the Trinity present at this one moment in Jesus' uh, life. All affirming what is taking place and uh, empowering Jesus for what is coming next. And this is all fitting because this is the beginning. This is right before Jesus' teaching and miracle ministry begins. 
So it's appropriate to have the Holy Spirit and the Father affirm the Son at this moment. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And God himself gives testimony of that. So to sum up the second part of our passage, we see a couple more truths. Jesus' baptism was not necessary as a sign of sin cleansing for him personally, but it was a symbol of Jesus identifying with his sinful people that he would save and cleanse them. Both the Holy Spirit and God the Father gave testimony on behalf of the Son at the completion of Jesus' baptism. And the whole Godhead manifests itself in one moment of redemptive history. The Father and the Spirit testified on behalf of Jesus that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, affirming and empowering him for the ministry which he would shortly begin. Now we're winding down in our time here, but having looked at these passages, having discussed a number of interpretation questions, let's now consider application. That's step three of our method. John, the ministry of John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, the testimony of the Godhead, what difference do these things make in our lives? Why? Well, I exhort you to meditate on this passage and the things we've said, but let me suggest a few ways. Oops, I forgot to, forgot to put up those words. Let me suggest a few ways that we can apply what we've heard. I'll give you three. Number one, make sure you are ready to face King Jesus. When you least expect it, and rather than rescue you, he will cut you down and throw you into the fire. Beware, lest you are part of the chaff that Jesus will baptize in fire. Heed the warning of John. Repent and bear fruit of repentance. Jesus may come back, or you may meet Jesus early should you suddenly die in an accident or from an unknown sickness. So ask yourself, Am I ready to face him? Do I truly belong to him? Or if you do belong to him, would you be ashamed if you were to face him right now? Looking at your life, looking at what's going on for you right now, would you be ashamed if Jesus called you back to himself right now? Necessary. Let these truths that you've heard today change your mind and result in a changed action in your life. Number two, be baptized. The teaching of the New Testament is that one is baptized before witnesses, after one repents and believes in Jesus. Baptism doesn't save, but it is a testimony of salvation and cleansing before witnesses. So if you haven't been baptized, you need to follow in Jesus' footsteps and obey Jesus' command. If God was pleased at the baptism of his own son, he will surely be pleased at your baptism if you have not been baptized. And then number three, just considering the magnitude of what John declared about Jesus. Fear God and give him glory. God is great. There is no one like God. He loves justice and hates iniquity. He is full of mercy and love. He has every good quality in him. In an awe-inspiring measure. So praise God for his qualities. Thank God. Be in awe of God. Especially worship God because you, if you belong to him, you get to enjoy his glory. And you are not judged as an evildoer. We could say more. I would encourage you to meditate on more. But that's it for this week. Next week, 
We'll do part two of this lesson. We'll look at Jesus' temptation. If you had other questions or comments based on today's lesson, please email me. Let me close in prayer. Our God, every week we just encounter more amazing truths about you. It is fitting for the gospel writers to just talk about how amazing everything was regarding the incarnation of your son. <clears throat> and not just the things that happened in the past, but the things that will happen in the future are amazing. They are things that should fill us with awe and holy fear. You, Jesus, will come. You will bring the kingdom and you will bring the judgment. That's because you are good. You are holy and righteous and just. You are also loving and faithful. You will vindicate those who have waited for you, who have been seeking after you. God, we know we're not perfect. We know that we fail. But God, we know that you've also called us to manifest fruit of repentance. That should be what we want to do if we belong to you. So God, help us. Spirit, help us in that. Just as you empowered your son, I mean, just as you empowered Jesus while he was on the earth, empower us, sanctify us, cause us to work with you in that process of sanctification. We might be holy as you are holy. We might be a witness that we would declare to others the truth about you that they need to know. They need to know that the kingdom is coming. They need to know that they need to be at peace with the king. God, help us to do that. Help us to be bold. Help us to be full of love. Help us to live lives of holiness that back up our words. But help us to declare your truth so that more people might experience your mercy and enjoy you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Calvary. I will see you next week.